Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into Clojure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about Clojure with Nathan Mars, creator of Spectre and the founder of Red Planet Labs. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So you've been involved in the Clojure community for quite a while. I think the most notable previous project, or one of the most notable, was Storm, and then there was Casklog, and then Spectre more recently, and then just in the last few months, you announced Red Planet Labs or publicly sort of unveiled it. Mm-hmm. And so that's what brought you again to my attention. And so I wondered if you could maybe start with telling us a little bit about what Red Planet Labs is, or at least as much as you're able to say currently. Yeah. So Red Planet Labs, I started working on it. So I, I used to work for Twitter. I got there via acquisition. I was there for a little over a year and a half. And then I started working on Red Planet Labs as soon as I left uh, Twitter. And this was back in March of 2013. Uh, so I've been working on Red Planet Labs for quite a long time. And uh, the first you know, five and a half years was just me on my own, basically doing research, uh, researching like an entirely new way to build software. And so then late last year, I finished that research phase and I had my prototype. I now understood how to build this thing. And that's when I really turned it into a proper company by raising money and you know hiring my initial team. I can't say too much about what we're doing beyond what's on the website, but the goal of the company is to reduce the cost of building software, especially large-scale software, by 100x. So it's an entirely new approach to building full large-scale applications, like end-to-end. Um, and it's the end-to-end piece that's the key to what we're doing. Like, we're not just building some narrow piece of an application, right? Like, oh, just this one type of database index, right? Or this one kind of data processor. We are figuring out the whole thing. Um, that's one of the main problems I see in how software is constructed today is that you, know, you build software now by combining dozens and dozens of different tools together. And every single tool is very narrow in what it accomplishes. And like none of them care at all about the overall picture of how stuff should be built. That's up to you as the engineer to figure out, okay, I have all these Legos, basically Lego pieces, which weren't really built to fit together. How do I make them fit together? And that just does not work well. So we're taking an entirely different approach to this. And so 100x, I guess, concretely, an example could be, you know, you take this into a large scale system or large scale company like Twitter, mm-hmm. and you could, you know, do the same work with a hundred times less effort, less people. Yeah, it's, it's primarily the engineering hours that we're going to reduce. Yeah. Well, Twitter's a obviously something I'm very familiar with that product, like on the implementation side, because I work there. They're a great example. Like, look how long it took them to get to the point of scale. Like, you know, many of the listeners to this podcast probably remember like back in like before 2011 you know twitter was notorious for the fail well they were constantly going down was having so much struggles getting to a point of scale and it literally took hundreds of man years to get that product to the point of being scalable if you have to just think about the twitter product you know especially back then when it was just the basic consumer product you know, and maybe some API stuff as well. But it was a very simple product. Like you can describe that product in every detail of what it should do in a matter of hours. It took hundreds of man years to build. Now we're in a field of engineering, which is entirely about abstraction and automation. So how can that be that it takes hundreds of man years to build something that you can describe in hours? <laughs> and that that is the core premise of Red Font Labs. So figuring out what are the proper abstractions 
what's the proper way to put these things together so you avoid all that weight and complexity, which frankly, I think is just drowning the industry uh, right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. Drowning is a, is a good term to use. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've done closure stuff before, and I'm guessing that uh, Red Plant Labs is also a closure based. Yep. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it says it on the front built in closure. So it's a programming tool. So, yeah, we're using closure 100% for implementing our technology, but our product is not going to be a closure. I mean, we're, we're basically building a developer tool, right? So we're not going to be building a closure developer tool. We're going to be targeting Java. Because just as the nature of Clojure, it's a very, very small community, relatively. So I think it's a poor business decision to target that language for developer tool. It's the same thing I did with Storm back in the day, where it was yeah. completely built in Clojure, but it had Java APIs. And that was critical to the success of that project. So we'll be taking a similar approach with this new tool that we're building. Nice. And is there any other sort of Clojure specific stuff you can talk about in regards to this? Yeah, I mean, we're doing some pretty cool stuff with Clojure. I think we'll talk about Spec a little bit later, but um, like at the core of our technology is actually a new programming language, uh, which implements a new programming paradigm. It's a new fully general purpose language, and it's completely built within Clojure. And that's actually a particular strength of Clojure, which I don't think many people have really explored. But like with the power of macros and being able to do stuff so dynamically within the language, like you can implement a fully general purpose language and you don't have to implement lexing and parsing or any of that stuff. You know, Clojure is already doing that stuff for you. So that's like core to what we're doing, which I think is, uh, it's a really, really cool technique. And then, you know, we're basically, our language works differently than, than Clojure or a Lisp. It has totally different semantics, but it's still defined using S expressions. Yeah, I just think it's a, it's a cool thing as what we're doing. We're probably going to write some blog posts about this particular thing. Yeah, I'm trying to think what else could I describe about that that would be interesting without actually going into the details of it. Yeah, so so this is going to be targeting the Java platform, but it's a S expression based API. Like when people write this, are they going to be writing S expressions or? Oh no no, the fact that it's built in Clojure or this this new language underneath is it's going to be totally hidden. Like our customers will just will use a Java API, but. Um, we really did need to build a new language to even build this technology just to like make it possible for ourselves. I can say one of the interesting things about the language that's worth mentioning, and it's something I've tweeted about like occasionally over the past few years, is our language has first class continuations. Like we've kind of resurrected that concept from the dead. You know, if you've used Scheme before, uh, you're probably familiar with continuations, at least the concept of it. But other than Scheme, like, continuations and just there's kind of this academic curiosity from back in the day and it never really you know the industry never really did anything with it which i think is a real shame because continuations i think are one of the greatest programming ideas of all time and like we rely on them very 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 heavily for doing what we do Um, and i think the reason it never really like took off i guess continuations or reason like the industry has never understood what you can use them for and where they help you avoid complexity and accelerate your ability to build systems Um, and the reason for that is because continuations where they show their worth is with asynchronous reactive and parallel code and you know these are not the things you deal with when you're just doing like small programs or toy programs or small games things like that like these are the things you deal with when you build large full applications where all of these things are absolutely essential and 
you know, I can say from personal experience, having built distributed systems in the past, like with Storm and, and also other things, that there is just a mountain of complexity that you deal with by trying to build a system like that, like a parallel system without continuations. Um, you're, you're basically constantly working around that. And ultimately, what you build is not as good as what you could build if you had continuations as a primitive. So that's something that we're particularly excited about within our technology. Again, it's not something our customers will ever be aware of, but it's one of the key things that powers our, our tech. So for people who haven't come across continuations or maybe haven't done much with them for a long time, can you sort of just briefly explain you know, what they are, what they do? Yeah, a continuation is it's an abstraction over control flow. So I can basically say that, okay, I want to capture the continuation from this point. And that becomes an object that you can invoke. So like normal control flow is like you call a function and it returns. And then you continue executing from where it returned, right? Whereas a continuation would be like, let me capture the continuation. And then, you know, let's say we're basically capturing where this function returns to, right? Whatever that code path may be. And then we can capture that. And then later on, we can call that continuation. So whatever was on like that stack um, or what would, where was the context of where that function was originally called? We basically captured the continuation and we stored it and waited till later to call it. So instead of returning immediately, we captured the continuation and then in some other completely unrelated point of the program, we call it. And that will cause that other point in the program to finally execute with whatever value you provided. Yeah, easier to explain with diagrams. Uh, these continuations <laughs> are definitely mind bending when you're not like super familiar with them. But then you can do things like, okay, let me actually invoke this continuation multiple times. So instead of this point in the program returning one time as it normally would, it ends up returning multiple times, but in different contexts from which it was originally called. Let me give two examples. One is for parallel programming. So in our code, we're doing some processing, and then we want to move the processing somewhere else, like to another node or another thread or something like that. So we, we call that partitioning. We're partitioning the execution. And so we call that a partitioner. And so the way we write our code is like, we just have some code just doing some computation. And then we say partition, partition to this other place. And then we keep writing some other code. And the code reads linearly. Like you do this, 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 you partition, you do this, this, and this, and this. And the way our partitioner works, like it looks like you're just executing a function. But what it's actually doing is our partitioner captures its continuation. And then instead of invoking the continuation, which would be like returning normally. Instead, it takes its continuation and it ships it off to the queue, the event loop queue for another thread. And then it never returns on the thread on which it was called. And then on the other thread, it will then invoke the continuation as an event and then it continues the processing from that point. And so the effect is you write your code linearly, but it's actually changing threads while you're running, as you, know, as you instruct it with these special partitioner operations. Another example of how we use continuations is for asynchronous code. So like one of the things we do, just to make it a little bit more concrete, so our programming language that we develop is actually exceptionally good at making small, like very interactive games at the console. So that's actually like whenever someone new starts at RevBot Labs, their first project is to build a small game. So like I built Blackjack as a demo. We had someone build Tetris, which was really cool. Someone else built Minesweeper. So like things like that. Um, so there's these single threaded games that run at the console with a reactive uh, UI. And so like as an example from Blackjack, one of the things that you want to do with the program is you have like the dealing step where you're dealing 
one card at a time between the dealer and the player. And you want to deal a card every like half a second or something. And so the way the code works is it's a loop. It's a loop over deal targets. So first player, then dealer, then player, then dealer. And then it says, we have a function called UI future, which basically says run the continuation of this code half a second from now. And then continue on the same thread that you were on originally because you know all UI programs should happen on the same thread. And so we say UI future deal. And then it loops. So they go UI future deal, UI future deal, UI future deal, UI future deal. And that's the deal step. And so you read the code linearly, right? Okay, we're going to wait for half a second and then deal. Wait for half a second and deal. But it never actually blocks the thread. Because um, if you block the UI thread, your UI thread is now unable to render, unable to animate, unable to do any of that stuff. Instead, what our UI feature does is it captures the continuation and then it sends that continuation off to another thread to basically just wait on the other thread. It will wait for half a second and then it will send that event back to the UI thread saying, okay, it's now been half a second. Now you can execute this event, which was the continuation of where you were before. So that's an example of continuations for uh, asynchronous programming. And I hope that was at least somewhat understandable um, without actually looking at real code and like, using diagrams or whatever. But those are the kinds of things you can do with uh, continuations that are very, very uh, powerful. Yeah, that seems that seems very powerful. And so you talk about UI in sort of a, in an example of just you know doing something in the console, but does Red Planet Labs programming language span all the way to the UI in the browser? Or is this focused on backend system? No, we're just, now our product is for now, for our first product, we're focused on, um, we're focused just on backend. Yeah. Gotcha. So everything from just data creation, data ingestion, to producing, to indexing your data, um, and also querying, and also querying your indexes. So everything that goes into that, as well as deployment and monitoring and things like that. Right. And so one of the things you said, uh, which you kind of just passed over, which is a pretty interesting idea, is that this is a new, fundamentally new programming paradigm, mm-hmm. I guess, in the same vein as functional programming or imperative programming or object oriented is that that's what you mean when you say that yeah it's like that fundamental like the new paradigm i actually say hey this is arguable i think it's the first truly new programming paradigm since the 1970s you know that's arguable like you get into the questions of what is a programming paradigm like what does that mean but i think in terms of like categorization i guess like this is definitely a new category and and the whole continuations thing was kind of a, an accident at first as i was initially like discovering this paradigm it was just like an accident one day where i saw oh wait if i just take these two fields and i switch them that looks like a continuation it was only later that i realized like how to properly leverage them but it's it's something that kind of just fell out naturally just through the nature of the paradigm great so you were spending sort of you know five five and a half years just on your own researching and then more recently you've sort of announced publicly here we are and you've started hiring so you've hired a few people now which and one thing i noticed which even in the closure community is not that common is hiring remote employees yeah so yeah can you talk about sort of hiring why you chose remote work your thoughts on that area yeah i think well i uh, i feel very strongly about fully distributed teams, um, at least for software development, which is certainly the area that I'm familiar with. I think it might be different for like a sales team, uh, but for software engineering, I believe very strongly for fully distributed teams. I actually think that 
if you're just being rational about it, this is clearly the best way to run a team. I don't even think there's a question about that. Not even a debate, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, like I, that's how strongly I feel about it. You know, I spent most of my career working in offices, at least partially in offices. You know, well, don't even get me started on open offices, which I think is, it's like an open office is basically engineered to be the worst environment possible for a programmer. Just crazy of frequency and degree of interruptions, which is death to programming. It's not even a joke. It's just like a accepted fact in this industry where it's like, oh, I get most of my work done after normal working hours. And it's like, that's not how it should be. That doesn't, that's actually really bad. You know, and open offices are definitely a contributor to it. But like, even if you did offices better, which I think there are better ways to do like an office environment, if you had like three to five person, like rooms, like, you know, sub offices within the office. So it wasn't this like chaotic environment that are, that are truly open offices. That'd be better. But uh, I still think fully distributed is better because ultimately this should be kind of obvious, but I've certainly had this debated with me, but the core job of a programmer is to program and programming is very, very, very thought and focus intensive. And also it doesn't necessarily happen on a fixed nine to five schedule. It's hard to just like, you know, like when I'm solving a programming problem, like very frequently, I'm not solving it in front of my computer. You know, I need to like, you know, Rich Hickey talks about this as hammock time, right? You need to just be like sitting and relaxing and kind of just like in your little mental world, thinking about this problem and, and how to solve it. Um, and it just needs a lot of focus and a lot of relaxation. And what better place to have that than at home where you can completely control your environment? So that's, that's a big reason why I think it's just like the best for programmers to be fully distributed. Um, just just because of the, the focus, but also as a company, it's extremely advantageous. There's the obvious one, which is that you can recruit from anywhere, um, and that's a really big deal. Like looking at Red Planet Labs now, of my core team that I hired, it's me and, and three other guys. No one is in San Francisco, so if I had done this the typical way of you know starting my company and starting my whatever venture funded company in San Francisco, like so many other companies, then I would not have access, you know, and I was requiring everyone to be on site. I would not have had access to anyone who was on my core team, which is an extremely strong core team. And I don't think I could have hired nearly as strong of a team if I had only recruited from San Francisco. You know, when you recruit just from San Francisco, you are limiting yourself to a very, very, very small portion of the surface area of the planet Earth. Yeah. When you're willing to hire anywhere, you've now expanded your service area by thousands, especially when you are willing to hire internationally. So like my core team, I have one of the founding engineers is in Ohio and we have two guys in, uh, in Canada, in Montreal. I mean, I could go on and on about the benefits of remote work. And we've certainly been learning, like, what, how do you do it right? Because you do lose things with remote work. Well, you, you risk losing the feeling of camaraderie, of being on a team, which I think is really important. And so you have to work a little bit harder in a fully distributed context to recapture that. So one of the things that we do is we do a lot of pair programming. Uh, but it's not like pair programming with the intent of like, oh, we're actually going to work together as equals on this task. It's more like, okay, it's one person's project. They're driving and the other person is there to just you know, help a little bit, but more just get face-to-face -face time and with your teammate, right? And also to share knowledge and let knowledge spread through the company. And there's other things like that that we do to just like recapture the feeling of camaraderie and 
that you lose by not being co-located. But it's really not that hard to do. Like there's nothing challenging about this. You just have to be more aware and more diligent about it. And all of your uh, team is in North America at the moment, a North American time zone. Yeah, at the moment. That's, that's, but, but we were open to hiring um, really anyone in the world with the caveat that, you know, whoever we hire, if they're in like an extremely different time zone, because of the fact we, we do think pair programming is very essential and, and we, you know, we do standups and we do need to have face to face. There would still need to be substantial overlap on working hours so that we could do these things. So, you know, if someone from China, like, wanted to work with us or work on Red Planet Labs, they'd have to be willing to work some odd hours in China so that we could have that overlap. Our current team is all North America at the moment. Nice. And at the moment, you've, you're have you not looking for anyone else you know, today to join the team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are planning to hire more. But, you know, I hired the initial team pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I was, I was solo and I hired uh, the first employee in late February and then two more in... Uh, end of April, beginning of May. So I, I'm, 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 I'm giving the current team time to congeal, right? And, and also just letting us as a group, like, learn to work together and, you know, have everyone, you know, I've created this five-year body of knowledge, which I've thrown in the laps of my employees. So it's, it's, it's a bit of an onboarding process. So before we hire anymore, I want to make sure that the core team is in a comfortable place and, and a very productive place, which they're getting there at this point. But, um, It'll be, um, you know, it'll probably be like nine months or so before we hire more, but we will hire more for sure. Great. And then do you have any kind of idea of when we might be able to hear a bit more about what this new paradigm is going to look like or is that still a ways off? Yeah, I had a, uh, when I raised my round, my seed round, I had a prototype, but there's a lot of work to get from the prototype to product. And then like, even once we have the product, we're planning to do a, uh, a private beta and that's going to take some time you know the private beta will be to get our you know have those first initial customers and then work through like any specifics on details on api or integrations and stuff before we actually go public so it's going to be a while before we're public about it probably at least uh no i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna say a time frame because <laughs> it's it's something i can't really hold to at this you know large software projects are as we all know are notoriously difficult to predict so um it's going to be a while. That's all I'm going to say. And uh, but you know, with that in mind, that's why I raised such a big seed round because you know we, we need to make sure we have that buffer to really build this thing properly. Yeah, I mean, five million is you know enough to keep you going for for a while, especially if you're not paying for a San Francisco office space. Yeah, yeah. So uh, something that you created for maybe a little bit more years ago uh, was Spectre. And Spectre is in the, the Red Planet Labs namespace, you know, com.rpl.spectre. So, mm-hmm. you know, this was sort of tied to your investigation in some ways. So can you talk about what is Spectre and maybe how, if at all, you know, it was derived from your, your research? Yeah, I mean, so like I was saying, like the core of, what we're, of our technology is a new programming language. And so it's the core of what we're doing as a compiler. Really, when I was starting working on the compiler, like a long time ago, this was back in like 2013, 2014 or so. And, um, you know, I had a lot of data types, data structures, and uh, with different kinds of fields and all sorts of stuff, right? So there was some nested data structures uh, of some sort. And I needed to do a lot of just compiler stuff. So going through it and processing and, and analyzing. 
I certainly encountered this before working on Cast while I was working on Storm. Like whenever you are dealing with a nested data structure with Clojure, which is regular vanilla Clojure, it was extremely painful. Like you want to do something like, let me append to a vector that's nested in this map. It would just be a bunch of code. And it was easy to mess up the code as well. Um, there's also like other stuff, like you want to uh, you want to prepend to a vector. You actually cannot do that in Clojure. There, I mean, there's no function in Clojure that lets you do that. You can do it manually. There's cons, which it doesn't actually prepend to a vector. What it does is it prepends and then gives you a completely new type that would not respond to the same methods of, or the same things a vector would do. And you know, Clojure has this rationale because prepending to a vector is it's not possible for that to be an efficient operation, but I had real use cases in building a compiler where I needed to do that, and they were not cases where performance mattered, not cases where it would ever be a bottleneck. So I really did need to depend. So stuff like that, and then I had more complicated use cases. I did a lot of stuff with directed acyclic graphs, and I would need to do these like broad transformations on these graphs. And again, to do it manually with Clojure would have been an absolute nightmare. Um, and so Spectre just originated out of just these just basic use cases of needing to update every value of a map or update every nested value of vectors inside of maps or update every nested value inside some complicated data structure satisfying a certain condition. And so Spectre was born out of that. And I came up with this like path concept, which it's kind of like XPath, where like you want to manipulate something in a data structure uh, and you literally give it a path for how to get to what you care about. And that path could navigate you to one thing um, or it could navigate you, navigate you to many, many different uh, values. And so the way Spectre works is that, let's say you want to you know, increment all values in a map that are even. And so with Spectre, you literally say transform, map vals, even, question mark, the even predicate, inc, and that's it, right? You're literally saying how to get to what you're doing. And so that's the basic, that's what Spectre is. And so Spectre was, um, it started out as being, you know, with a very nice API for expressing these things very concisely, but it was actually pretty slow. And so I needed it to be faster, like in general. Obviously, there are cases like I mentioned, prepending to a vector, which that's inherently going to be slow, right? But just in general, if you're doing something like incrementing every value of a map, right, you want that to be fast and not to become like a serious bottleneck in your, in your program. So a lot of the work in Spectre was figuring out, okay, how do I take this very concise, elegant abstraction, this concise, elegant way of doing these very, you know, simple or sophisticated manipulations or queries and making it run uh, like as optimal as possible. And that took like a long time to figure out. And so now a Spectre is, its performance is like blazing fast. It actually outperforms closure itself on many common operations. So like the only things that closure has that are even comparable in terms of like overall like API would be get in and update in. And Spectre is 30% faster than those for the same uh, use cases, which is pretty substantial. And that all comes from all the optimizations that went into it. So we could dive more into uh that portion of it, because I think that's actually a really interesting area of Spectre, and especially in terms of doing something novel. I think so. And I think it's something that as you get more performance sensitive code, traditionally, you'd have to understand more and more about the implementation of Clojure and what concrete types you had underneath. And, yeah. oh, I can't use this function because it's actually doing this thing here. And so you have to build more and more knowledge of the concrete implementation into your code. And that's something that Spectre you know, lets you avoid that you can write 
fast code, but keep it at a higher semantic level, which seems very useful. Yeah, so there are two keys to making it fast. The first one is pretty straightforward, which is doing the same operation on different data types. To do it fast requires different implementations. And so that's something Spectre does. So like map vals is, is a good one. Like you want to transform every value of a map. And so it turns out to get optimal code, the implementation is completely different depending on what kind of a map it is, whether it's an array map, which would be Clojure's data type for a small map, or if it's a larger map. So like, oh man, I need to remember exactly how I did it. Basically with the array map, you want to go and iterate over the arrays directly. It actually will literally look at the arrays directly and iterate and do what it needs to do. But it does not use transients for an array map because the overhead of transients outweighs the benefit you would get for it. Whereas for a uh, persistent hash map, it ends up using transients and reduced KV and stuff like that in order to do its uh, to do its work. Now, the second optimization, this is where Spectre gets into like novel territory. So I call the technique, or I call what it's doing, inline compilation. So like when you use Spectre, like the API is you have an operation like transform, and then your path is just represented as a vector. So it'll be like, I want to navigate to the keyword A and then to every element of whatever, you know, that sequence that I'm at there. And then I have this predicate for filtering what I want to stay navigated to. And so you specify as a vector and you have a sequence of what are called navigator um, objects. And these navigators, or some of these things can be basically functions that return a navigator. Like there's one called S range, which navigates you to the subsequence of a sequence. And so it's parameterized with start and end index that you want to navigate. Now, if Spectre were to run by actually taking this vector and at runtime, like reducing over it to do the navigation, that's just way too much overhead. And it's just not fast, nowhere near optimal. So that's actually not what it does. What it does is inline compilation and inline caching. So it's the same technique that like the JVM uses and certain parts of Clojure uses where you have like data specific to the call site. The call site just being where you are invoking the Spectre operation and that data specific to it is basically the compiled version of that path where all the analysis and composing the navigators together into one navigator has been done for you so there's no sequence traversal nothing if a function was called with static arguments which are a navigator that's already resolved this get resolved every time for the for that call site and so that's what specter is doing so it's actually uh, which i think is really cool and i'm actually not aware of anyone else ever using this technique before, like at the library level. This is, inline caching is, as far as I know, has only been done before at the language level. Uh, and, it's, and it's a cool testament to Clojure, the fact that you can even do this. But basically, the these operations with Spectre are macros. And in the macro, it interns a var for the call site. And that var contains the result of inline compilation. The first time that call site actually runs at runtime, it does the path compilation stuff it figures out what's dynamic, what's not, what needs to be parameterized at runtime. And it actually generates a function using eval and puts that into the special var that was interned for there. So the next time it runs, instead of having to compile everything again and do the analysis of the sequences and stuff, it just grabs whatever's in that var and it just executes it. Executing meaning if it was a fully static path, then just execute it directly. And if it had parameters and provide the runtime parameters, to get your navigator and then run it. And this is the key to why Spectre for something like get in or update in is 30% faster because Clojure does it at runtime and reduces over this runtime sequence. 
where Spectre only does it on the first indication recall site, and all future indications have already done the analysis and no longer ever needs to reduce over that sequence again, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's pretty clever. And it used to be, if you wanted that optimal performance, you'd have to do it kind of manually in your code, Mm -hmm. and then you've sort of lifted it in the new version so that it's just done automatically for you. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, there's a few things which currently Spectre is not optimal for, but they're for like, if you were to do like get on a map, like literally the function get. So even with all the inline compilation and caching and stuff, just retrieving like that field and executing it uh, like through the navigator like machinery, and you end up being twice as slow as like a normal get to do the equivalent like via Spectre. But other than those like extremely simple basic operations, Spectre is equal to or faster than what you could do yourself with Clojure. Yeah, well, that's that's very powerful and it's hugely valuable to the community that you you know open sourced this work. I imagine it's many 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 hours of of thought and then implementation to actually get to this point. Yeah, yeah, it was a fun project for sure. And it seems like it's you know relatively stable, or you've kind of got. Not that it's done, but like, are there any other sort of large things on the horizon for Spectre or uh, are you sort of focusing on other things at the moment? Yeah, I mean, we have a bunch of additional stuff that we use internally. So I mentioned we do a lot of work with graphs. I've actually mentioned this multiple times over the years. So we have a collection of graph navigators. So ways to use Spectre with graphs. We can do things like transform over topological order over a graph and navigate like into nodes and navigate to a subgraph and like all sorts of like cool stuff and we use that stuff extremely heavily inside our compiler and i've been trying at least when i've given talks in the past to uh compel someone to take that on as like a separate open source project to basically you know with my help and guidance to build an open source like open source graph navigator library but no one has quite taken well i've had a few that have been interested in doing it but they kind of just fell off the radar and never actually did it so I would still love for someone to from the community who's interested to uh, wanted to learn more about Spectre and, and get my guidance on that to take that on. But that is certainly something that I, w- I would like to see as open source one day. And probably if no one from the community ends up taking it on, it's probably something we'll eventually open source from. You know, we'll rip it out of our own code base and, and open source it. And I think there's other opportunities for like Spectre navigator libraries like that doing specific to certain other kinds of data structures and stuff like that you know there's also like smaller stuff like right now spectre has a pretty comprehensive set of navigators for dealing with many 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 data structures or at least the core data structure closure one thing it doesn't have which i would like it to have is more navigators like specific to sorted maps or sorted sets which we're currently not uh handling at the moment so those those are the kinds of things on the horizon for future work Great. Well, thanks so much for telling me about Spectre and Red Planet Labs. I'm very curious to see what this new programming paradigm is. And uh, it sounds like you'll be hiring again in the future. So anyone interested should keep their eyes on your Twitter account or the usual closure watering holes seem to surface job listings for closure places. And yeah, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was fun.